Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on sports, and we interview the author. This week, our guest is Tony Collins, and we are discussing his book, A Social History of English Rugby Union, published by Rutledge in 2009. Tony is one of Britain's most respected sports historians. He has written histories of the two rugby codes, Rugby Union and Rugby League, as well as an insightful book on the cultural history of sports and alcohol. Three times his work has been recognized by fellow scholars in Britain as the year's best book in sports history. He also served as founding editor of the academic journal Sport in History, and currently he is director of the International Center for Sport, History, and Culture at De Montfort University in Leicester, which is one of the world's leading research institutes for the study of sports. In light of his standing in the field, I wanted to talk with Tony about what he sees as the aims of sports history and what we can learn from research into sports. As he explains in the interview, research into sports history offers a lens through which we can better see larger issues of social and cultural change. And that was certainly the case in his history of English rugby union. I've read a lot on 20th century British history over the years. But in reading Tony's book, I discovered plenty that I hadn't known. It is a rich book that covers a range of topics in social and cultural history, and we covered just a few of these in the interview. I enjoyed speaking with Tony about the book, and I think that you'll enjoy listening to the interview. So let's get started. Today on the program, we have Tony Collins on the line from Leicester in the UK. Tony, thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports. Thanks. Great to be here, Bruce. By way of an introduction, I'll say that you're probably the most decorated sports historian in the UK. You've received the Aberdare Literary Prize for Best British Sports Book three times, most recently for the book we are discussing today, A Social History of English Rugby Union. So to start, let me ask you how you became a historian of sports and rugby in particular. Uh, Well, I guess um, I did history for my first degree at university. I went to the University of Warwick, did history, and I wanted to continue, but I guess at that age, nothing's ever straightforward. So I didn't continue with my studies, left before I got to do a postgrad course. And then about maybe eight, nine years later, I thought, I've got to get back to history. And I started a master's program at Sheffield Hallam University. And at the time, what I wanted to specialize in was labor history. Um, that's what I'd spent a lot of time working on it, uh, as an undergraduate at, uh, at Warwick University. And um, as I was doing the master's program, I did a, a fantastic course by a guy called John Baxendale on the origins of popular culture and mass entertainment in the UK between 1870 and 1914, which I've got to say really opened my eyes because a lot of the things that I was interested in, I would have been interested in if I'd have gone on to do a labor history in more depth, um, stuff about class. Uh, about gender, about um, 
uh, about different conceptions and ideologies uh, in the way that people viewed the world um, really came to the fore in um, uh, in um, they really came to the fore in popular culture in Britain during that period. So you get uh, obviously the birth of mass spectator sport. There's also um, the music hall. A bit later, you get the origins of the cinema. So that kind of um, when it came to deciding on a subject to um, to embark on a PhD study, then I thought, well, sport. There's a lot of uh, it's a very um, unexplored. Uh, territory, and I, I was amazed to discover that nobody had ever written on the um, uh, the division in rugby in the 1890s that led to rugby splitting into two games, which very rapidly became very, very different and had very different cultural meanings. So, um, so I did my PhD on on the splitting in in rugby during Victorian times. Um, and that came out as a book, uh, 98, 99, uh, Rugby's Great Split. And in a sense, um, I've been working on sport ever since. I mean, I may go back to, I may go back to uh, my original plan of doing something on labour history, but um, I, I think the thing that's kept me interested in the history of sport is that once you start unpacking the various layers and the... Um, uh, the various aspects to, to to the history of sport, it does really allow you to look at broad questions in society in a way that's that's quite um, that's quite difficult uh, in if you like more traditional um, areas of social history. So that's how I got into sport, and I guess the um, the book that we're talking about today, Social History of English Rugby Union, is uh, kind of the culmination of that interest in uh, in the social history of rugby. So picking up on that in terms of, of your original interest in, in sports history and, and something of your aim in writing sports history, at the very end of the book you offer something of a, of a defense for the importance of sports history. You talk about sport as a form of, of deep politics is your term. And could you talk about what you mean by that and how your research addresses this idea of deep politics? Yeah, I, it's kind of... Um... It's kind of try, I'm trying. What I'm trying to do with that phrase is to bring out the the underlying meanings of sport. Um, one of the reasons why I'm particularly interested in rugby is because um, the way that the game and its derivatives have developed has been very, very closely related to social attitudes. And so the the running theme through the book is the way that. Uh, ideas about social class have divided the sport. The, how ideas of Britishness, uh, of the British Empire, in fact, uh, have divided the sport. And in a sense, what these, um, although it's very rare that people would actually come out and say uh, something that's explicitly uh, motivated in political terms, uh, because as with all sport, um, there's a great. Um, uh, there's great pressure to uh, believe that sport is non-political and that it's really above politics, it's outside of society to some extent. Whereas in fact, much of those common sense assumptions, many of those common sense assumptions that people have are really based on ideas about politics and um, social attitudes that uh, actually lie much deeper than simply which party you happen to vote for at a particular election. That comes out very strongly 
um, in rugby because the the two variants of, of rugby, rugby union and rugby league, are incredibly tightly wound up with very, very different conceptions of how the world's viewed. So, for example, rugby league is, is seen wherever it's played, whether it's in Australia, the north of England, uh, France. Um, it's seen very much as a working-class sport, as a sport that views itself as being a democratic sport, open to, uh, to everyone, uh, regardless of uh, race, class, creed, or whatever. Rugby Union um, has a very different sense of itself. Uh, it sees itself as a, uh, a defender of um, more conservative traditions, not in any... Um, not in terms of the British Conservative Party, but in terms of small C social conservatism, um, it has historically, um, in the main, but not always, historically been associated with um, um, uh, white South Africa and was very closely associated with the apartheid regime in South Africa. Um, it was associated with the Vichy regime in France. Now, that's not to say that all or even the majority of people who follow the game uh, necessarily share those opinions. But I think it does illustrate the, the way in which sports and society becomes very, very tightly entwined, which is also true of other sport, I think. But rugby has a way of, in a sense, highlighting, I think partially because it was a sport that did split over social issues. Uh, rugby, in many ways, concentrates and highlights those uh, those issues in in a way that um, uh, other types of football, certainly soccer, don't do in such a concentrated way. And one more general question before we turn to the book. For many years, you were the editor of the journal Sport and History, and you just recently started a new position as director of the International Center for Sports History and Culture, which is one of the top sports studies institutes in the world. So perhaps more than anyone, you've had an overview of the state of sports history and sports scholarship. Can you tell us what uh, your view is of, of the state of the field and what trends do you see in the, in the historical study of sports? Um, well, like all historical sub-disciplines, it, it has its ups and downs. But I think um, there's a lot of very interesting things going on within, uh, within sports history at the moment. Um, not just coming from people who see themselves as um, primarily as historians of sport, but also from historians from, from other disciplines. Um, so, for example, uh, Peter Kane, the um, historian of British imperialism, uh, has recently done a very interesting article on uh, the social, social backgrounds of cricketers in Edwardian Britain. Um, Ross McKibben, again, a, a key figure in British social history studies over the last... Uh, uh, 30 to 35 years, um, wrote a very interesting chapter in his book on British social history on, on sport and its relation and its relations to broader trends in British social history. So there's, in a sense, uh, there's the, um, in fact, mainstream history has become much more um, uh, aware of the importance of sport and using sport uh, uh, to, to, to illustrate um, broader trends in uh, in history, uh, but also I think in general, there's a, it's it's quite an in, sports history is it's quite an internationalist uh, field as well. Um, so, for example, um, Bob Edelman, who's uh, who's over in the states, wrote a very interesting book that came out uh, maybe eighteen months ago on Moscow Spartak, 
which is a fascinating social history of, of, a soccer, of the soccer club, Moscow Spartak. Um, and uh, another book that I pick out, which I really enjoyed reading, is uh, a book on by um, a couple of historians, uh, Chris Young from England and um, Kay Schiller from Germany, on the 1972 Munich Games and the and the way in which the the, the Munich Olympics um, contributed to the to the making of modern Germany. And that's a really rich and well-researched book, which um, stands as well as anything else that I've ever seen in English on, on the history of post-war Germany. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things going on. The other interesting thing, which is probably worth mentioning, is that um, one of the, um, uh, I think one of the big gaps in um, the history of sport, given its importance, is a history of sport in the British Empire. Um, although there have been articles and uh, conference papers done on various aspects, nobody's actually written in English a history of sports in the British Empire. But in fact, uh, Sebastian Dabon in France um, has actually, as far as I'm aware, written the only uh, history of sports in the British Empire in French. Um, So there are a lot of interesting things going on at an international level. The other thing I would say, which I think is, again, very interesting, is... um, there's a lot of good work being done on the relationship between sports history and literature. And I know you had Michael Oriard on the, on the program a couple of weeks ago. Michael's done a lot of really interesting stuff on football and its relationship to literature. Um, and there's a, a lot of interesting things going on in, um, in Britain at, uh, at the moment. Um, there's a very interesting book on the history of cricket and its relationship to literature by a guy called Tony Bateman. Um, and there's a very active um, sports literature society as well, um, which um, is in many ways, as with all good good scholarly research, it crosses the boundaries uh, between literature, history, uh, even sociology in some way. So there are a lot of interesting things going on um, in that link the history of sport to both broader themes in mainstream history but also um, to, to other disciplines as well. So I think it's in quite a healthy state and it should get more interesting um, over the next few years. All right, well, let's turn to the book. And to start, I, I want to ask two general questions about the book. This is a history of rugby union, and you've already written a history of rugby league, for which you also received the, the Aberdare Prize. So on behalf of, of rugby Philistines, and you've already discussed this a bit in terms of the differences between rugby union and rugby, rugby league in terms of the, their view, their cultural view, their political view, uh, I'm gonna, I want to ask you to give an explanation in a way that will enlighten the ignorant but not insult the knowledgeable. What is the difference between rugby union and rugby league? Well, uh, yeah, that's a $64,000 question. Um, I, I, on the playing field, um, the basic difference uh, is that on a rugby union team, there are 15 players. On a rugby league team, there are 13 players. Um, in rugby union, you have a lot of scrums. You have line-outs when the ball's thrown in from the sideline. Uh, in rugby league, there are no line-outs, uh, and there are a lot fewer scrums. The scrum is much smaller. Um, Set-piece players, as they're known in rugby union, don't play such a big role uh, in rugby league. Um, I guess the other t- the kind of philosophical differences in the way the games are played is that in rugby union, 
Um, there's a great deal of emphasis on what is known as the struggle for possession, to get the ball out of the scrum, to get the ball from a line out. And probably most importantly, when a player is tackled in rugby union, uh, what is called a a ruck or a maul is formed and there's a struggle for possession for the ball there. In rugby league, that doesn't exist. Uh, Not in that way anyway. Uh, When a player is tackled, kind of like in... American football and Canadian football, uh, the player gets up, uh, puts a ball down in front of him and plays a ball behind uh, to to the halfback. Um, so I guess in some ways you could argue that uh, rugby league is a kind of, um, it's kind of a midpoint between football in the States and, and rugby union. Um, uh, but, Again, it's uh, and I th- the interesting thing is that it's a um, uh, many of the differences are subtle and not necessarily noticeable uh, to an outside viewer, yet they are phenomenally important and will be defended to death by partisans of each sport. Um, and then, of course, as I mentioned before, you've got a whole range of cultural and social differences, which are pro- which are far far more. Um, uh, 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 far, more, far, far more different than the, the the way the actual game is played. So my second general question about the book also relates relates to the stated scope of the project. So this is a social history of English rugby, rugby union. And in the book, you do discuss rugby union in other countries, such as France, such as South Africa, and you discuss rugby in the other in the other home nations, in particular Scotland and Wales. But your work focuses on England. So why a history of specifically English rugby union as opposed to, say, British rugby union? Well, um, well, the, the, um, one of the obvious answers to that is that there's already been a very, very good book on the history of rugby union in Wales. But it's called Fields of Praise. It's by Gareth Williams and um, Di Smith. And it came out maybe in the 1980s. And it's a fabulous book. I encourage anybody to read it. Uh, whether they're interested uh, in in rugby or not, and it's and it's like the be- the very best pieces of uh, sports history. It's as much a history of Wales as it is a history of the um, uh, of rugby in Wales. Um, so that was partially my reason. The other the other um, more important reason I think is because. Um, I think at the core of rugby union, you will find Englishness, um, either in the way that it's embraced by the English or in the way that it's contested by um, the other nations of the British Isles or by the other rugby union playing nations. So um, there, there, there's, a const- so there's a constant tension between not only Wales and England but also Scotland and England uh, for obvious reasons, between the Irish and England, uh, and then also from the southern hemisphere, the major southern hemisphere rugby playing nations, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, um, they um, um, perhaps not so much now the game has gone professional, but certainly um, up until the 1970s, 1980s, um, there was a um, at first, an acceptance of the essential Englishness of 
of rugby and its role within the British Empire. And then as the British Empire itself started to decline and decolonisation set in in the 1950s, 1960s, there was an increasing contestation of why do the English play a central role in rugby? And it's important, and that was expressed on an organisational level. The English Rugby Football Union effectively ran an international rugby union until um, uh, until the until the 1940s. Uh, up until the late 1940s, the English Rugby Union held a uh, effectively an inbuilt majority on the international board, which governed the world game. So it's a kind of um, and I so. And, there's another reason as well, I think, which is uh, in a sense more important, and that's that it's one of the reasons why I'm interested in looking at sport, as I explained at the beginning, is because of what it tells us about society in general. And I think that by looking at um, what I attempted to do with the book um, was to, in a sense, use rugby as a prism to look at British society over the past, uh, well, almost 150 years. Um, and whilst I dare say you could do that with um, by looking at rugby in Britain as a whole, I, um, I felt that task was probably a bit beyond me. So I, I just stuck to the uh, to the dominant uh, the dominant nation of the British Isles. So you begin and end the book with a reference to Tom Brown. Who is Tom Brown, and what is his significance for the origins of rugby? Well, as I'm sure many of your listeners um, will have experienced, uh, Tom Brown's school days is. Uh, for better or for worse, I mean, it's it's quite a dull book. Certainly for modernised, it's an incredibly dull and boring book. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's the archetypal um, sports story, the archetypal schoolboy story. Um, and more importantly, when it was published in 1857, it really was a handbook of how to organise a school and also a treatise on the importance of sport, and particularly the rugby school version of football, um, the importance of sport to the um, development of, of healthy young men. And it was the success of the book of Tom Brown's school days that I, I argue was really crucial to the type of football that was played at rugby school, which became known as rugby football, uh, becoming a... Um, uh, a sport, the sport that we know today. Without the influence of the book, um, I think you can make a strong case that rugby wouldn't have ha- held such a prominent position in sport. So what was the purpose of team sports, not only rugby but the other varieties of football in these schools in the early 19th century? Well, um, at one level they were there to um, dissipate the boys' energy and get young adolescent uh, 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 young adolescent males um, uh, doing something with all that bodily energy that they uh, that they built up. I mean, there's a big scare in the 1850s uh, and 1860s about the the dangers of homosexuality and uh, well, basically adolescent sexuality. So sport became important because it's a way of getting rid of those energies and tiring boys out. Um, but also at a a broader level, team sports became very important as a way of training. Um, young males, socialising young males in um, uh, a sense of team spirit, uh, emphasising the importance of abiding by the rules and fair play, but also um, emphasising the importance of competition. Remember in the 1850s, 1860s, 
in many ways, this was the golden age of, of, uh, of British industry, of the British Empire, and the need to train the next generations of leaders of the empire and the country uh, was um, uh, became an issue of, of great importance. And alongside uh, many educational reforms that happened over the next 30 or 40 years, sport itself became very popular, and team sport, and particularly football, both the association soccer code and the rugby code, uh, along with cricket, became very important. So much so, in fact, that they, um, uh, in many ways, they, they ceased to be merely recreations. They uh, acquired a moral force. Um, so it was no longer simply a question of going out and enjoying chasing a ball around a field or whatever. Uh, it was as much for the moral lessons that boys could be taught through playing a football or rugby, whatever code. Um, it was as much for that that sport became important as it was for just the, the enjoyment of it. And I think that was a new thing as well. Up until that point, up until the mid-19th century, um, sports had been organised either simply for enjoyment or more likely in terms of the more commercialised sports, such as boxing or horse racing, for the purposes of gambling. The development of um, the, what became known as muscular Christianity, the, the idea of a healthy mind in a healthy body, really for the first time gave sports a, a moral purpose as well as a recreational purpose. So um, Tom Brown's school has really captured um, that and expressed it in a way that was um, uh, um, uh, understandable both by the boys who read it and also uh, acceptable to uh, and popular amongst uh, the people who ran um, the elite, prestigious private schools in Britain. So rugby spreads, quick, spreads quickly in the 19th century, not only in Britain, but also into Ireland, onto the continent, and throughout the empire. And what was the attraction? Why did rugby spread really around the world? Well, a lot of it was, was, was bound up with Tom Brown's school days, because Tom Brown's school days became a massive international bestseller in particularly in the English-speaking world, but also became a bestseller in, uh, in France. Um, so, um, and obviously, if one read that book, the, the Code of Football, which plays a central role in the, in the book of introducing Tom Brown to uh, the, um, the values and the mores of uh, the English public school life. And, um, and by the way, I suppose I should point out here that a public school in England is not a public school as understood in the rest of the world. It's a private school. Um, so uh, it was really on the back of the success of Tom Brown's school days that rugby became popular. And it wasn't merely the rugby code because I think you can also make a strong case to say that uh, Australian rules football uh, which is a, uh, a variant of uh, rugby which there's no offside and there's lots of uh, uh, lots of kicking that derives again specifically from um, Tom Brown's school days and, and also it's a um, I think essentially what happened in terms of the development of that game was that the rules of rugby were taken but were adu- uh, uh, adopted and changed. And I guess to some extent you said the same thing about football in North America with um, American football and Canadian football. Um, initially they were both variants of rugby and um, just as it was going on in Britain to some extent there was a, a lot of tampering with the rules 
uh, amending of the rules, making them more appropriate to uh, local conditions. And um, uh, it, they eventually developed into Australian rules in Australia or uh, American football or Canadian football in, in North America. Yeah, what was interesting was that all, in all cases, um, at their core, they, they looked back to some type of muscular Christian uh, philosophy that was the um, that gave the sport its moral purpose. So as rugby spreads in the 19th century, in particular into new regions of England, and as it began to be played by men of the working classes, you have the development of tensions between these new converts to the game and the young men of the middle class, and it would probably be more appropriate to call them the upper middle class, uh, who were the ruling establishment of the sport. So how did this tension play out in rugby? Well, that was... Um... This is one of the most interesting, I think one of the most interesting points about the development of sport in that whilst the ideas of um, uh, the young men who played rugby, who took rugby from the school and started the clubs in their locality when they're adults, um, uh, initially there was a quite an enthusiasm for bringing in the working classes to play the game in the hope that they would, um, uh, they would learn some of the moral lessons. There was a, a movement in... Um, in Britain, uh, roughly around about the same time, called rational recreation, which was this idea that the the recreational activities of the working class needed to be reformed. So they needed to be uh, given an alternative to drinking, to gambling, to licentiousness. And um, in some ways, the ideas of muscular Christianity um, were very sim- uh, were very similar to the ideas of rational recreation. And you have a lot of uh, clergymen, uh, particularly Anglican clergymen, who were very keen on rugby. Um, and they saw the game as a way of spreading its moral message to the working classes. It didn't quite work out that way. Um, a similar thing also happened with soccer, but uh, in a slightly different way. Um, as more and more working class uh, people came into the game, not simply as players, but also as spectators, um, there started to be um, social tensions started to emerge because working class players didn't necessarily accept the authority of um, uh, the more middle class uh, members of clubs or leaders of the uh, of the local rugby organisations, the local uh, the local rugby unions. Um, middle class players were not necessarily comfortable playing against working class teams. You have to remember that um, rugby was a recreational activity for these young men, and the th- one of the things they enjoyed most about it was the fact you got to play with um, guys of a similar background, probably in similar industries, similar bin- businesses or professions. That was kind of disrupted if you're playing against players who had not who you had nothing in common with. You may you know, it may be a team of miners, a uh, team of factory workers. The social the social element of the game was lost. The other problem you had was the fact that big crowds started coming to matches and there was a, um, the way in which working class crowd, crowds and middle class crowds uh, saw their role as spectators very different, was very different. Um, working class crowds were much more interventionist. They shouted, booed, jeered the referee, uh, would occasionally throw things on the pitch. Um, yeah. Middle-class spectators 
um, were very different. Uh, they were much more polite, uh, m- much more restrained, uh, much more even-handed. They weren't necessarily as partisan. The other problem there was is that middle-class players simply didn't like a lot of middle-class players, not all, but some of them simply didn't like playing in front of working-class crowds because they would be called names, they'd be booed, barracked, jeered at. Um, this was not why they took up the game. They wanted to have a good game uh, with their um, with their friends, not to be um, uh, not to be treated as some of them thought as as um, as um, as members of a circus. Um, so there were social tensions, and the big difference was, um, but the big difference was the fact that there was an expectation amongst working class players that if they were good at the game, they would receive some reward. Um, whether that might be monetary or in terms of gifts. Uh, this was a very different conception from middle class players. Um, and it was the, um, it was, and also this was a reflection of the reality of the, um, the backgrounds of the two players. Many, uh, certainly uh, elite working class rugby players had to take time off work to uh, participate in the game, um, either to go to training or to play in matches. And that meant that they lost wages. Um, for um, middle class players who perhaps worked in, as, uh, worked in offices, uh, perhaps were members of the profession, maybe doctors, lawyers or whatever, didn't have the same problems. So there was a um, uh, a kind of cultural tension there. Uh, and uh, many of the clubs in the north where rugby had become a mass spectator sport, in many areas it eclipsed soccer. Um, uh, even in places like Liverpool and Manchester, which today we associate with huge, huge soccer uh, teams. Up until the mid-1880s, these were um, rugby strongholds. Um, and the clubs in the north of England... Um, uh, felt that pl- working class players should get some recompense for having to make a sacrifice to play the game. And they proposed that expenses should be paid for the time that players took from work to play the game, uh, which became known as broken time payments. Um, the leadership of the, uh, of, the, of the Rugby Football Union, uh, which was overwhelmingly made up of uh, men who'd been to um, either public school or schools that were modelled on that basis, objected. Um, in 1893, uh, there was a major, uh, a major conference of the rugby union authorities, decisively voted down the idea that there should be payments for, uh, for broken time. And in 1895, uh, matters came to a head when it was clear that the, the rugby authorities were about to start expelling uh, clubs that were accused of paying players. Um, they were going to expel uh, clubs from the rugby union. And in August 1895, um, 22 of the leading clubs in the north of England broke away, founded a new authority, what was initially called the Northern Union, and later became the Rugby League. And the two, um, the two games went their own very separate ways for another um, uh, for over a century. Until, with great irony, jumping ahead century, uh, on August the 27th, uh, 1995, uh, 99 years and 363 days after the, the Northern Union had been formed, 
the Rugby Football uh, Union and the International Rugby Board decided to um, itself go professional and allow payments for players. Uh, and the wheel of 10 full circle. But in that intervening century, and you talk about this in one of your later chapters, this division between rugby union and rugby league was as fierce and rigid a division as you could find anywhere in sports. Oh, absolutely. It's a... I don't... I think it's actually far worse than anything else you can find in sports. You get... I mean, there's... A, obviously, in the States, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of rivalry between leagues like the NFL and the AFL in the 60s. Uh, in the early years of Major League Baseball, Federal League, Players League, uh, and all that type of rivalry. Um, they never uh, had the same draconian restrictions on players um, that existed in, in rugby. If you had played rugby league, either as... Uh, uh, whether or not you'd receive payments, you were uh, banned for life from playing rugby union. You couldn't switch between the two codes. Um, if you were an official associated with a uh, with a rugby league club or you were a rugby league referee, you couldn't join a rugby union club. Um, it was so bad that uh, some rugby union clubs um, even had a... Um, uh, a clause in their membership application form which asked um, effectively are you now or have you ever been a member of a rugby league club and if you answered yes then you, you couldn't join and this went on uh, almost uncontested until the 1980s uh, when it started to break down partially because rugby union uh, had, uh, was starting to come to grips with the fact that it would probably have to turn professional eventually. Um, and also because of the way that society had changed. It was no longer, in British society, particularly in England, it was no longer um, easy to simply assert your authority, as the middle classes had done for the previous 150 years. Um, uh, it was no longer possible to simply assert that this is, these are my rules and uh, you need to follow these. And Therefore, uh, members of parliament became involved in the campaign against the restrictions. Um, uh, even, the, even the tax authorities uh, got involved because of rumours that rugby union players were receiving money uh, um, uh, under the counter, uh, surreptitiously. Um, so it started to break down in the 1980s. Then in 1995, the, um, the dam burst. But even so, the interesting thing... Um, about this, which I can't, again, I think it demonstrates the way in which sport is always far more than what happens on the pitch. Um, there's no sign that the two games will come together. Um, the cultural divide, which grew up over that previous hundred odd years, is still as strong as ever. Um, and uh, there's no sign that it's going uh, it's going to heal. So we have rugby union, rugby league, let's bring soccer into the mix. And, and you had mentioned earlier that in the 1880s in, in cities like Manchester and Liverpool, which we now associate with soccer, uh, rugby had been the most popular sport. So uh, how was it that um, soccer uh, passed rugby in terms of popularity? Um, basically, it's... I'd say it's, it's, it's largely a result of the policies that the rugby authorities uh, 
um, followed. So um, the rugby union, the governing body for rugby, which is established in 1871, was, um, was initially very, very successful. It had more clubs than the Football Association, soccer's governing body. Um, it, was, uh, it had uh, a stronger following in the major industrial cities in the north of England. Um, what it didn't have was a, a national cup competition. So the FA Cup had begun in 1871. And uh, although it took a few years to get uh, to become popular, certainly by the early 1880s, it was becoming one of the premier sports competitions in, in Britain. And more than that, it, it brought a... Um, uh, uh, it, it, it brought to soccer something that was very unusual in, in Britain, which is a very class-stratified country, um, in that you could have a team of uh, mill workers from Lancashire playing against the Old Etonians, uh, 11 guys who'd been to the very top uh, elite school in Britain, and which actually happened in the FA Cup final. So this, this was a big, big thing, very unusual, meant that you could, uh, these small towns in the north of England or in the English Midlands where soccer was played, they could reach the FA Cup final and play these uh, uh, highly prestigious teams. And in 1883, Blackburn Olympic uh, actually defeated the Old Etonians, which is uh, really the, the, the football world, the soccer world, turning upside down. Rugby had nothing like that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the rugby union authorities turned down the opportunity to establish a national competition because they felt that it would um, um, it would undermine the the social basis of the game, largely because many of the elite teams in uh, uh, in uh, in the south of England simply didn't want to play against teams from the north. You also had two other factors. One was the fact that in uh, 1888, uh, the Football League was founded. So you had a National League competition, which today is the, you know, it's the, just a natural way of playing any sport. In Britain at the time, this was very new, but it became astoundingly popular very, very quickly. And so it meant that uh, you had elite teams playing each other each week. Big crowds went to matches, and you had huge press interest again because the rugby union uh, authorities didn't want um, to undermine the social basis of the game they didn't allow uh, certainly didn't allow a national league and they were not very keen on local leagues either so in Lancashire in particular they didn't have a cup competition they didn't have a league competition until uh, the mid 1890s and of course soccer had not only the national cup and the national leagues it also had local leagues, local cups. So it was a lot more interesting. Instead of going to see a friendly match between a couple of teams from Manchester playing rugby, uh, much more exciting to go and see two, team, two local rivals play each other in a knockout cup competition. And the final thing, the third thing that soccer had over rugby was that in 1885 it legalised professionalism. There was a short, sharp debate, maybe lasting 18 months, and the Football Association decided that it would legalise professionalism, um, largely in this kind of in the same way that cricket had had professionalism, and that there's a very very sharp social division, but nevertheless, 
amateurs and professionals can play on the same team. Um, whereas in rugby, you had a civil war over the period, best part of a of a decade, um, leading up to 1995, um, and and again coming back to the the point I made very early on, the uh, rugby became a form of politics. You, it wasn't simply a question of which team you supported, uh, which rugby team you supported. It was also a question of, well, what side did you take on the question of broken time? What side did you take on the question of league? So it's, in a sense, for a mass spectator sport, that's, it's not a good thing that the action on the field is completely overshadowed by the politics of the sport. Today might be a, bit, a, a different thing when you know, the media is interested in every possible aspect of sport wherever you go. But in those days, it's a, um, soccer had become the national game through organisation, it was united, it didn't have the same political problems. And essentially, that was what undermined uh, rugby's popularity in the major cities, such as Liverpool, Manchester, uh, Newcastle as well. Was Rugby was the, the major game there in the early 1880s. So, um, so, so rugby really lost its chance because it became a very inward-looking um, uh, and a, a, a very conservative game, uh, unwilling to try cup competitions, league competitions, things like that. So soccer, actually, soccer was actually the big winner of the war between rugby union and rugby league. To carry this forward into the 20th century, uh, something interesting I found was uh, how rugby, rugby union's popularity relative to soccer uh, went up and down during the period of the First World War, the interwar period, and the Second World War. So could you talk about the, the connection of rugby union, the, the ideals of rugby union, how they were associated with the ideals of patriotism and, and uh, volunteering for the colors and so forth, and how that affected rugby's popularity uh, into the interwar period, and then how rugby's popularity declined during and after the Second World War? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess this goes back to the idea about um, that uh, rugby is a kind of deep politics. Um, in the um, in the period before the First World War, um, rugby union identified itself very strongly with um, the fate of the British Empire. It presented itself as the as the imperial sport because it had ha- it had. Uh, expanded to South Africa, to Australia, to the white dominions of the British Empire. And those teams, uh, those countries sent touring teams to Britain. It was able to present itself as a, um, um, uh, as if, perhaps even the, the, the winter sport of the empire. It was very closely associated with um, uh, the armed forces, uh, a lot of its um, key players, particularly in the run-up to the First World War, uh, were volunteer um, volunteer reservists in the, what we know here is the Territorial Army. And it's... Um, uh, and I guess it's, it's roots in muscular Christianity um, and the ideas of Tom Brown's school days. They, these were very closely linked to... Um, uh, military endeavour and the sport was a preparation for military preparedness 
Um, and this is actually talked about in, in Tom Brown's in Tom Brown's school days, and it became a uh, an aspect of the way the game was taught in schools. One of the reasons why it became important for education. So perhaps unsurprisingly, when uh, the First World War broke out in August 1914, um, a huge number of uh, young men who played rugby volunteered to go and fight um, in the British Army on the, on the Western Front. And one of the consequences of that, um, it's worth, sorry, it's also worth bearing in mind because of the social background of many of, of the players, because they had been to uh, public schools, they'd been to universities, uh, again, where there was a very close association with uh, military preparation, with, a, uh, with, the imperial, uh, with the imperial spirit, if you like. Um, uh, they were very keen to, uh, very keen to join up. It's, there's a line... Rupert Brooke, the famous British war poet, um, went to rugby school and actually played, uh, was a big rugby fan and he, pl- he played for the school side. Uh, but he wrote a poem in, um, in 1914 which concluded by saying, at last we have come into our heritage, that at last the war has been declared and this is what we have been trained for at school and through sport. Um, that had, um, uh, as we all know now, um, uh, tragic consequences. Uh, huge numbers of men um, sacrificed in the war, and um, rugby union in particular, uh, which lost. Uh, I mean, there's, um, the best part of a hundred rugby internationals were killed uh, during the, the, the First World War. I think 20, uh, 23, 24 from England, a similar amount from Scotland. Interestingly, uh, but this was, in a sense, this was used by. Um, the rugby authorities after the war to demonstrate the value of rugby as a sport. Um, and a huge debate broke out um, in the English education system, in the British education system, uh, much, um, it, it, much broader than simply England at the time, about the role of sport in education. And one of the things that had happened in, uh, in the First World War is that as well as rugby union being very closely associated with this kind of martial imperial spirit and also with the officer class because of, because of the social background of uh, most rugby union players, many of them have been officers in the army. Um, rugby union had become seen as the, um, the sport of the officers. Um, soccer um, had also become... Um, um, solidified, if you like, is the, the game of the masses, of the ranks of the army, and consequently of the, of the working classes across Britain. And um, in the 1920s, this big debate um, uh, broke out in the English, British educational system about which game was best for, for schoolboys. Many of the um, supporters of, um, uh, uh, of the public schools felt that they should play rugby because it was a game of the officers and as can be seen from the record of its, uh, of its players during the war, um, it uh, had managed to um, develop within them uh, a, a sense of sacrifice, a, uh, a sense of um, patriotism that um, overshadowed everything else they did. Soccer was seen as a um, as a game, not sim- not only for the working classes, it became associated as a working class game, 
Uh, but also, it, there were uh, it, it had in the eyes of um, of some middle class commentators, it soccer had been a um, um, a not necessarily fully patriotic sport because it hadn't stopped playing in the same way that rugby union had during the war. Soccer had continued, uh, professional soccer had continued for certainly the, the first year of the war. And um, it continued to attract large crowds throughout the war. And that was seen as a bad thing, seen um, as undermining the war effort, which I, I don't think there's any real evidence that it did. And in fact, in many ways, as the British Army itself discovered, it was a great source of um, uh, morale-boosting uh, um, activity. And so, the, the, but the, nevertheless, the popularity of rugby union grew tremendously in the interwar years partly as a result of the debate in education. So most uh, public schools started playing again. Many of them dropped soccer to play rugby. Um, grammar schools, which were kind of selective schools in Britain um, that were based in the locality, uh, kind of schools for the lower middle classes, by and large, most of them started to play rugby, dropped soccer. And... There was also as another corollary of that was there was also a um, a huge growth of what became known as old boys teams made up of former pupils of these schools, and so there was this very big growth of uh, of rugby union within the interwar years um, that um, um, uh, kind of meant that it had a significant social weight within uh, within Britain by the beginning of the Second World War. The interesting thing about the Second World War was that because it was fought on a very different basis, it was seen as the People's War. Uh, there was a lot of rhetoric about fighting fascism, about equality, about what type of uh, country Britain could build after the war. Um, um, the, the philosophy was much more a... Uh, the, sorry, the, not the philosophy, but the kind of... The, the attitude that was expressed during the war was much more a social democratic one of bringing the working classes, the trade unions, the labour movement and the Labour Party into the, into the into governance of the country. And um, that meant that sports like soccer and rugby league, which were associated very much with the working class, became, um, um, uh, became much more popular after the Second World War. In the 1950s, as things changed again, rugby union experienced another uh, uh, boom in popularity, partly, again, because of the way that the educational system changed uh, and the growth of higher education in Britain at the time meant that a lot more, um, and also PE colleges, uh, which grew very, um, very significantly in the late 1950s, early 1960s, meant that rugby union started to um, uh, regain a lot of its former popularity. So that's, I, I was going to ask about in the post-war period. The book is not uh, structured chronologically. Instead, your chapters deal with different themes such as war, class, masculinity. But I want to ask two questions that come out of thinking of some kind of period, periodization for rugby's history. And, and the first of these is, how did the social and cultural changes of the 60s affect rugby union? Well, that's a, it's a really interesting question because... Um, it was quite often remarked on in the 1960s, um, uh, not simply by people outside of the game, but uh, one or two players, that uh, rugby union seemed to belong to a previous era. The 1960s, obviously, were the, the age of um, uh, student protests, civil rights movements, 
Um, it, was, it, was a, it was an era of massive social change. Rugby Union was incredibly conservative and tried to turn its back on that. It really came face-to-face with it, with the change in situation, however, over the question of South Africa. South Africa was and still is today um, a major, major rugby-playing nation. Um, uh, they're the current world champions, and if there had been a Rugby World Cup in the 1950s, they would have probably been world champions then. Um, but also, the other defining feature, you know, the key feature of South African society at that time, was the apartheid regime. In the 1960s, following the, um, uh, the Sharpeville massacre and... Uh, um, uh, the intensification of the apartheid police state um, attacks on the um, uh, 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 on the, the, those opposing apartheid. Um, South Africa, South Africa, became increasingly isolated, both diplomatically, politically, and also in the sporting sense. And uh, South Africa was expelled from FIFA, from the IOC. It was never formally expelled. Uh, from the International Rugby Board. And it continued to have uh, close relations up until the late 60s, early 1970s, when the Springbok, the national, the Springboks, the national team of South Africa, toured Britain in 1969 uh, and faced an incredible amount of demonstrations. Uh, incredible hostility, not simply from people outside of rugby, but again, from some people within rugby itself. Um, as they did in later in the 70s and 80s in Australia and New Zealand. Um, that really, I think, was a, um, was a wake-up call to the Rugby Union authorities that um, things had to change. The other thing that happened was the growth of TV sports coverage. And the, the English Rugby Union authorities became become very aware in the 1970s about the amount of money that is available to sport. And that presents them with a big problem because the, one of the um, corollaries of amateurism um, was a, uh, an opposition to commercialism. So the rugby union had been approached by companies in the late 1960s, early 1970s um, about sponsoring matches, about sponsoring um, tournaments. And they had, the rugby union had initially said, no, no, we're not interested. It's against the spirit of the game. But you can see from about 1973 onwards, the amount of money that is available becomes increasingly tempting. And they also think, well, other sports are getting the money. Why should we lose out? And so you find there's a gradual chipping away of the, um, the fundamental principles of the game in terms of commercialism, amateurism, and also this overriding sense that it's no longer the 1930s that there's a uh, they can no longer rule in the way that they had done in the past and they're challenged again by the South Africans by the New Zealanders by the Australians who think that the English Rugby Union authorities are very conservative and very narrow-minded it's interesting to note by the way that um, France which had been playing senior international rugby union since 1906 um, wasn't allowed membership of the International Rugby Board until 1977 um, which is a, an indicator both of how conservative the people controlling the International Rugby Board were and how Anglo-centric it was um, so things start to change in the 1970s and you get 
one of the things that really concentrates minds is uh, something which I guess would have had no impact whatsoever in the States, but uh, the Kerry Packer cricket revolution in Australia in the 1970s, where Kerry Packer basically decides he's a, he runs um, one of... Uh, he's basically Rupert Murdoch's um, nemesis. He runs the other um, TV corporation in Australia. And basically, the Australian cricket authorities refuse his bid to televise um, international cricket. And he says, fine, I'm going to buy up all your best players and run my own competition. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, eventually, after two or three years, there's compromises reached. But there's this, uh, when Packer launches his own cricket tournament called World Series Cricket, it sends shockwaves throughout rugby. Cricket and rugby share the same uh, global footprint. It's strong in the, rugby union is strong in the same countries, um, certainly in the same white, predominantly white countries that uh, that cricket is. And we'll leave aside India and the West Indies, which have no real rugby traditions. Um, and so, Packer makes the rugby authorities um, reconsider their position. They realise then that if they don't do something. Uh, to um, uh, keep control of their game and allow inc- greater levels of commercialism and perhaps open the door to a form of professionalism for players. They're going to lose control of the game. And in a sense, it's the old thing, the old, um, they the resort to the old, um, uh, the old adage, if you want things to stay, stay the same, then you have to change things. And that's what they did. So um, in the mid-1980s, they finally decided to organise a World Cup competition, which, um, again, has a bit of a snowball effect. And it's very successful. Um, They do it at precisely the right time, uh, the beginnings of um, satellite television, um, the growth of um, satellite television in the English-speaking world, occurs at precisely the same time the Rugby Union World Cup has been launched. So it, they couldn't find a more propitious time. They couldn't find a more um, um, uh, a, a more welcoming set of circumstances in which to start to commercialise their game. And the success of the Rugby World Cup leads them to um, uh, uh, gain more and more commercial prominence. More money comes into the game. And of course... That means that the players start to ask, well, if all this money is coming into the game, why don't we get a share of it? And eventually in 1995, um, they decide to go professional. The interesting, the, the one interesting point about this, the great ironic point, is the thing that pushes them over the edge uh, into professional, open professionalism is, is rugby league. It comes back to haunt them because... Um, Rupert Murdoch in 1995 um, starts his own rugby league competition. He basically does a packer with rugby league. And the rugby authorities think, well, if Rupert Mur- we know what Rupert Murdoch's like. If he's got a lot of cash, he's going to spend it. And he could well spend it trying to attract our players to, come across, to go across and play rugby league. And they decide, again, we've got to keep control. So, we, uh, so they went professional. And so it's a kind of the changing attitudes of the 60s. It's, they, it's a tug at the thread that leads them all the way down into professionalism and to basically complete abandonment of their, um, everything, uh, every principle that the sport had ever stood for. But the explanations that you just gave uh, in terms of the movement toward 
commercialization and professionalization gives a sense of, of outside actors acting upon the RFU. Yeah. But you do have a line in the book, and, and this is the second part of my question on periodization. Uh, you talk about professionalization in 1995 as a reflection of uh, larger trends in English society. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, and again, it's one of the... It's, it, it's a it's an example of how there are lots of overlapping and continuous pressures that eventually lead them to to, to make this decision in 1995. Um, one of the really interesting things about about English rugby union is that at, at a leadership level, it's it's um, it's very closely associated with. Um, um, Many of the, uh, um, I, I guess you could say, that social attitudes, social links, social organisations of the upper middle classes. Um, so, for example, it's historically been very close to the City of London, to the financial um, uh, uh, financial core of of, uh, of British society. Um, so um, many of the um, many players and administrators are involved in, in, in finance, either with um, the Bank of England at one point had a very successful um, rugby team. Uh, um, uh, there are the bankers, financial advisors, solicitors in the city, things like that. Um, in Brit- Britain in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, uh, started to undergo uh, very significant changes in the way that the middle classes view society. Um, in a sense, if what was known in Britain as the old boy networks, um, the um, the ways in which business was done on a handshake, in which the importance of being recognised as a gentleman, of uh, having gone to the right schools, to the right universities, being a member of the right clubs, um, yeah. what was known colloquially in Britain as the old school tie, because you wore the tie of your school, so you knew that someone else wearing that tie or a similar tie was was the right type of chap. You could do business with them. That really started to break down in the 1960s. Um, the idea that Britain was a um, uh, too dominated, a society too dominated by amateurism and amateur outlook to business, to life in general, became very um, became very prevalent. The idea that Britain should be a professional society, uh, should cast aside amateurism, uh, became very important. Um, that was strengthened very much in the 1980s uh, under the premiership of Margaret Thatcher. Um, one of the things that the uh, Thatcher Conservative government did was to dismantle a lot of the old um, social networks that control business. Uh, deregulation. Again, similar things happened in the States in the 80s under Reagan. Uh, deregulation, the freeing up of markets um, uh, in the city of London, all the uh, traditional ways of doing business were swept aside in what was called the Big Bang um, when um, computers were brought in. Um, a lot of the old regulations that were seen as stifling business were, were basically thrown away. And it was, uh, well, a lot of the, a lot of the, if you like, the old school um, uh, members of the professions felt this was a bad thing because uh, everything in their eyes became about money, 
became about uh, doing a deal. It wasn't no longer about relationships. It was no longer about if you knew a person about personal ties. It was simply about making money. Um, and that was reflected very strongly in rugby union. Um, in the 1980s, um, rugby union and the, and the city of London became very closely associated. So, for example, the annual varsity game between Oxford and Cambridge, uh, which takes place always in the, early in December, uh, was seen as a, a big day out for the city of London and the beginning of the Christmas celebrations. Many international rugby players held jobs in the city of London. So these attitudes would, went right th- not only through um, uh, the professional middle classes themselves, the business middle classes themselves, but also through rugby union itself, through its personnel. And that led to an increasing um, dissatisfaction amongst the players and many administrators over the old ways of doing things, over the old amateur ways of doing things. They wanted professionalism, in not only in, in that it meant players should be paid, but also in the way the game was organised. Um, and that very, very closely re- reflected what was going on in British society at the time. And so, in a sense, the external factors that were pushing rugby towards professionalism um, were matched also by these broader trends in society that um, rugby union was being swept along by and um, the external factors nudged it further along that path. Um, Interestingly enough, once the decision to go professional in 1995 has been made, it caused great agony for many people in rugby union who had been, you know, they'd been raised on the ideas of amateurism and about the game being uh, about socialising. They have this... It's still used to some extent, but it was particularly used in the in the old days. Many people in rugby union thought that it was a Freemasonry. Uh, it was a, it was really about um, socialising, about recreational and business networks. Um, and so, even after the international rugby board had voted for the game to go professional, there was a, a strong element in the game who wanted to go back to amateurism, which would never have have worked because it would have uh, just simply meant that players would have left England for lucrative contracts. But that was still very strong, and you still find it today. I mean, there's a um, uh, a, f- a good friend of mine, um, a guy called Tom Hickey, who I quote in the book, who said during the, uh, the Rugby World Cup in Australia in 2003, it's the best of times because the game is so professional, but it's also the worst of times because the game has lost a lot of what, it may, uh, what made it uh, different in world sport. So we're almost out of time. I want to ask something that, that you don't discuss in the book, uh, but it came to me while reading the chapter on professionalization that, that not only the RFU in, in rugby union, but the other governing bodies of the major English sports, the FA in soccer and the MCC in cricket, were all somewhat boxed out by the increased commercialization of sports in the 1990s. And today, uh, all of these three uh, organizations that date back to the 19th, even the 18th century in the case of cricket, uh, they're all more marginal players rather than central players in sports. Is that uh, an accurate view? And, and is the RFU somehow different from the FA and the MCC? Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, I don't think the RFU are any different from the FA and the MCC. Um, a great indicator of the point you've made is the fact that there's very little stability at the top of these organisations. 
So I think the FA has had something like six ch- chief executives over the last decade or so. Um, the rugby union, uh, the rugby football un- union, has just lost its chief executive over, thanks to a boardroom coup. And I think a lot of it is because um, these are, as you mentioned, these are old organisations. In the case of the MCC, going back to the 18th century, and the culture of these organisations is still not suited to the very professional business-like attitude that now prevails in sport. And in many ways, that um, what's actually happened is that it's the TV companies, and, and in Britain, particularly Rupert Murdoch, Sky TV, who have become the de facto governing bodies. So in soccer, it's the Premier League, which is a creation of uh, Sky, in rugby union, uh, the money for the professionalisation of the game was provided by Sky again. In rugby league, um, Sky provides the money and uh, provided the money for the game to switch from a winter season to a summer season in the 1990s. And you can say the same thing about cricket as well. And in a sense, the the old governing bodies have become less important as leaders because it's the it's the TV company that now calls the shot. Um, and it's going to be very interesting as to how that plays out over the next decade or so. Um, everybody keeps expecting the satellite TV bubble to burst, but there's no indication that it's going to do at the moment. So, yeah, it's, uh, I think that's a, it's, it's, that's a really good point, and it kind of raises questions about, how, about the governance of sport in the future and how closely it is tied to these broader trends in society. All right, I'll ask in closing, Tony, what are you working on now? Are you, uh, you've written about Rugby Union, Rugby League? What are, what's your new project? Uh, uh, well, I, unfortunately, hubris has got the better of me. I thought, well, I, <laughs> what I should do now is just write a general history of sport. <laughs> so I'm try, it's, but I'm trying to write a kind of small, synthetic, comparative, comparative history of sport. Because I think there's a lot of interesting things about the development of baseball and football in the States and the links between the development of professional sport in Britain and also European sport as well. People often forget forget that um, sport's not simply an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. There's a lot of interesting things about Europe. So I'm, uh, I'm in the middle of trying to write maybe 60, 70,000 words about the evolution of sport from the 18th century to the present day. So, But as I say, I, it's one of these things where you think, oh, you know, I've been off more than I can chew, so hopefully, hopefully we'll see the light of day. But I'm not going to guarantee it. All right. Well, I'll look forward to it. I hope it. I hope it does appear. So, in closing, I'll say, Tony, and while you certainly don't need my compliments for a prize-winning book, I found this to be a uh, a model work of sports history in the sense that I I learned more about English society, English social history by reading about the history of English rugby union, which I know is, uh, as you said at the start of the interview, is something of your aim to use sport as a prism in which to look at society and issues of class and gender and so forth. So, so I congratulate you on, on a great book. It was, I enjoyed reading it. Uh, as I said, I learned a lot, and thank you for appearing on New Books and Sports. Thanks for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to an interview with Tony Collins about his book, A Social History of English Rugby Union, published by Rutledge in 2009. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. Please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to 
thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.